You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Story. I'm Yondan Latu, Chief News Editor at the South China Morning Post and host of Talking Post, our flagship video series where I interview newsmakers as well as the people who unpack and analyze the news. I recently had a most interesting chat with our own in-house China specialist, Executive Editor Chao Chongyan. We discussed the key takeaways from China's latest two sessions, from President Xi Jinping's unprecedented third term and his new leadership team to the country's economic, defense and foreign policy direction. Now, Chongyan is what I call a true China expert, someone who really understands the country. He provides an insider's perspective beyond the usual mainstream media narrative, which, quite frankly, can often be ignorant and misguided, if not downright biased and hostile these days. Listen to him here and you can judge for yourself. Hi, Chongyan. Good to have you on the show. Chongyan's in uh, Beijing. He's uh, our executive editor, but he's also uh, the guy who drives our newspaper's China coverage. And he's there in Beijing right now because he's just finished uh, directing operations for our coverage of the end of the two sessions of uh, China's top political advisory body and uh, China's top legislature. Now, uh, Just one thing before we start. So uh, we've been bombarded with uh, expert commentary and uh, analyses of uh, what has happened uh, during these two sessions and what they mean for China and the rest of the world. A lot of it is expertise uh, from overseas. Uh, a lot of it is from academia, um, theory crafting. But I think what's important for our audience, uh, for our viewers, is to listen to somebody who is actually covering China day in and day out, who has a formidable track record of uh, work regarding explaining China to the world, analyzing China, looking at everything that's happening in China on the ground. So Chung Yan, you're the perfect person to really dismantle unpack what has happened during the two sessions and what it means for the rest of the world. So let's start first with uh, uh, Xi Jinping. So if you look at the general discourse now, the main takeaway uh, based on what uh, the rest of the media is reporting, the Western mainstream media in particular, is uh, Xi Jinping is, uh, has uh, secured an unprecedented third term as president. And most people see this as a dictator for life. Now, I also want to remind people that uh, uh, the experts who now are freaking out over Xi Jinping being a dictator for life were the same experts who predicted that uh, when he first took over that uh, this was the weakest Chinese president in history. And yet here we are now. So Xi Jinping, third term as president, dictator for life. Is it as simple as that? Yeah, I wish things can be that simple. Actually, this is a very crude and a, a very simplistic view. And then uh, to focus the analysis of China just on that, I think it's a risk of missing the much bigger picture. And it is, it's also, to be frank, it's also risking of misunderstanding what we are dealing with. So to begin with, I, I, I think we have to understand uh, that uh, in China, it's true that this is a one-party dictatorship. So they say that up front, they're not hiding anything. They, they say, uh, say it loud and they, they want everyone to understand. They have no intention to change that. It's going to be one party. Now, as for within the party, who is going to be head of the party, 
a lot of people say that uh, when Xi Jinping changed the constitution, that would uh, that allows him to be remain in power for life. That's factually incorrect because uh, there's no term limit for the party chief. If uh, staying in power for life is his only purpose, it will be much simpler. He can simply install someone else as the president because that's just an honorary title. It actually holds no real power. So the fact that he took all this trouble to actually uh, change the constitution and then remove the term limit for the president shows that uh, the purpose is not just to remain in power, but he wants to do it in his particular way, which is to fuse the state and the party into one. So that's the real purpose. And then we have to remember what's the background, uh, how uh, Xi Jinping come to where he is now. So as you mentioned, Yondan, uh, I think uh, uh, 10 years ago when he first came to power, all the uh, China experts at the time, most of them, vast majority of them, dismissed this as a transitional figure. They, they say that because he has no clear um, <coughs> clique background, he has uh, no clear power base. He is a compromised candidate between Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. Eventually, one of the camp will uh, win, and then he would be set aside. And, and then at the time, a lot of people say that this guy will not even last for one term. And, and then 10 years later, now people start to say he is going to be China's emperor for life. So that kind of um, gap of understanding, actually to me, it shows that how people misunderstand China and misunderstand the Chinese Communist Party. So let's uh, go back a bit 10 years ago. If you look at the 10 years ago, China, even though looking from the outside is an uh, up and rising uh, superpower, but uh, it's uh, internally uh, the uh, political elite in Beijing, at the time they felt a strong sense of crisis because the country was rived with uh, corruption. And uh, the party was getting increasingly disconnected with the grassroots. The wealth gap is getting bigger and bigger. And then the internally, most important, internally, the ruling Communist Party becomes so fragmented that there's an even difficult for the party elite to sit down and uh, have a consensus over anything. It become very fragmented uh, party. And uh, uh, anything uh, that at the time the, uh, the the party heavyweight Wang Qishan was openly talking about the French Revolution. He was drawing the comparison between the French Revolution and the China at the time. And if you read, if you don't trust the Chinese, you, if you uh, uh, go to Google and you, you search for the WikiLeaks, you can read uh, all those uh, uh, diplomatic cable uh, uh, sent by Hillary Clinton, and uh, uh, you can read the uh, uh, reports by Robert Gates. These people at the time, their main concern is that uh, it's not that China is going to replace U.S. as the number one. Their concern is that uh, China may collapse and what we can do when China collapse. The Robert Gates was uh, openly telling people that he was uh, deeply concerned 
the Chinese military may get out of control, and the party can no longer have a meaningful control over the military. That was the biggest concern for the U.S. elite at the time. So this is the background where that uh, the we seen the Chinese Communist Party, particularly among the elite, this huge sense of crisis. Means that they come to understand that、uh, they need to do something drastic. They need to reconcentrate the power to the center, instead of、uh, doing the the so-called uh, uh, decentralized uh, uh, movement. They want to re-centralize, regain the power、uh, back to a strong core, because they believe only with a strong core, they can actually carry a lot of uh, uh, necessary reform. To revitalize the party, and then to ensure that the China will have a stable environment for it to continue、uh, its、uh, modernization. So that's the bigger background of all this. So today, I think what we're seeing is uh, this uh, concluding cha- chapter of the past decade. So at these two sessions, that's the last fin- finishing touch for Xi Jinping to finish the. Reconcentration of power at the top, and then he he now built a team of his own people. He then also this time、uh, announced a very sweeping restructuring plan. The restructuring plan is actually to make sure that、uh, the party will have greater and more direct control in the all these so-called key areas. And the justification he gave to the Chinese people is that China right now is facing this very unique historical moment, when the China has never been so close to the total national rejuvenation. But at the same time, the challenge also become greater than any time, because externally the world is becoming increasingly chaotic. And full of、uh, strife and、uh, uncertainties, and the U.S. is、uh, as the uh, uh, global hegemon is getting increasingly concerned with the rise of China, and the U.S. is、uh, trying to hold China down. And then domestically, China's economic development has come to a stage that、uh, simply by opening your door、uh, to the world, by promising to、uh, let the people experiment with different type of.、Uh, Business model is no longer going to be enough. You need to have a strong central government to give the country the kind of、uh, strategic planning, long-term strategic planning, and then to coordinate, and then also to manage the conflicting interests from all different sectors to ensure that、uh, that there is a stable environment. So that is the argument she put forward to the Chinese people: is that that only by doing so. We can ensure that we will be continue able to、uh, modernize the country, and then one day we can really restore our country back to the forefront of、uh, world civilization. Now, you you can have a lot of skepticism about what he says, etc. But the fact is, if you check all these、uh, American universities from time to time, they will do the opinion uh, uh, survey of the Chinese people. Then you have to say. He has the support of the majority of the Chinese public. That's the issue. So, to me, the risk of、uh, depicting everything happening in China as simply as、uh, Xi Jinping become 
the dictator of life. The risk is this. You are basically turning China into a plus-size North Korea. But you only need to come to China and spend a week or maybe a month living in China, traveling across the country. You will understand that this is not a North Korea plus-size. So you are dealing with something that maybe you don't like, but it is also not what you imagine to be. It's much more complicated. The dynamic behind it is much more nuanced. Now, without understanding this, I think that the risk is that you will be inventing an enemy that is only existing in your head. That, to me, is the risk the Western world is facing today. You're absolutely right, I think, about uh, uh, the stability, the importance of the stability of uh, China and also the continuity that uh, Xi Jinping carries on. Now, you're right about the simplistic uh, view of the way China is going about it and Xi Jinping's third term. I think beyond simplistic, it even uh, reaches a stage where it's a simpleton's view. The stability of China is something that the whole world needs and wants. And you could also look at it in this way, which is, uh, in terms of Xi Jinping's uh, third term, which is that China is under constant provocation and threats and attack. There's a lot of dangerous talk. There's a lot of dangerous maneuvering. There's a lot of dangerous uh, uh, suppression going on of China. So if you look at uh, this man's track record over the past years, in the face of all <coughs> that provocation, in the face of all that gaslighting and constant uh, siege mentality that they put China under, there has still been no uh, lashing out by China per se as, as, uh, in terms of uh, military action, etc. Isn't that in the world's best interest that you have somebody for the past few years, no matter what you throw at him, has carried on in a stable and a calm manner and the continuity of that? Isn't that the most important thing for the world, not just China? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. I, I mean, uh, I'm here in Beijing and uh, when I talk to those um, uh, Chinese officials, a lot of the time I get complaints from them is how the Western media, sometimes they include SMP of um, misinterpreting uh, China and misrepresenting China. And one of the conversation, the conversation will inevitably come to this is uh, the media always portray China as uh, become more aggressive and more assertive. So the question I get from them is that uh, of the major powers in the world, can you name one? that over the past decade actually has never fought war with another country. They say that you, you, you just uh, you forget about the U.S. because U.S. basically wage war on others almost every year, right? But if you even look at just countries like U.K., France, if there's anything that infringe on their national interests, the military option definitely is something that they were not shy about. And even if you look at, uh, uh, say, India, uh, India uh, constantly had friction with uh, uh, Pakistan, and the two sides are not shy about it either. Or if you look at, um, we, we don't have to bring the elephant in the room, uh, Ukraine and Russia. Mm -hmm. But even for Japan, Japan and uh, uh, South Korea, before the U.S. come in and forced them to sit down uh, and, and talk to each other, they were at the break of um, open conflict that uh, a lot of the time, I mean, both sides are accusing the other side as the aggressor. Now, then, if you look at China, militarily speaking, 
China is uh, much bigger than many of its neighbors. And it is also understandable that China has a lot of this uh, border friction with uh, all these uh, countries. But the Chinese official always uh, take this to remind me that uh, for all this, the four choice is always that they want to resolve all this by peaceful negotiation. Now, they, they, you can accuse them of trying to pressurize the other country, but they will say, which country in the world you can name me that will just sit back and let others to do whatever they, they like. Of course, the country will try to pressurize each other, which is normal. But China has uh, so far refrained from any kind of um, open conflict. Even the one that come really close, that is uh, China and India uh, over the Himalaya border. But even for that one, you can see that the both sides in the end, they took a lot of trouble to really to uh, contain the conflict. So to those Chinese officials, they think that China should be held as an example rather than being used as uh, the bad guy to show that uh, if every other country behaves like uh, what China is doing, maybe they, uh, we will all be living in a more peaceful world. To be frank, I don't know how to come back. I, I don't know how to answer uh, uh, those kind of challenge. Is there any downside at all about Xi Jinping's consolidation of power? Is there any danger that it could get to somebody's head and uh, you could have something that you used to have in the past with uh, China's leaders like uh, Mao Zedong? People are generally concerned about that, but I don't know how much of the concern is driven by the usual tropes about China or is there a risk in any sense? Uh, to be frank, that uh, there are real concerns. Uh, one big concern is this uh, so-called uh, echo chamber effect, because uh, when you have someone become so powerful, is uh, probably the most powerful in the past um, four or five decades. Then the concern is that the people surrounding him, uh, they will be so afraid of uh, voicing uh, different opinion. They were always uh, trying to. Uh, could flavor from the, the big guy. They will just uh, change their narrative according to the preference of the top leader. Then gradually, the risk is that the top leader will get cocooned in this uh, information bubble. And then you have the anchor room uh, where the real voice, the quality policy debate will not take place. Then the concern is that for a country this big, uh, facing so much uh, complicated situation and uh, uh, challenges, no matter how smart you are, no matter how uh, knowledgeable you are, you're bound to make mistake. Then when you make mistake, what will be the mechanism in place to correct that mistake? So that's a, a big concern. The other concern is uh, about the so-called uh, good emperor, bad emperor uh, issue. So let's assume, say, that uh, Xi is really a good emperor, and then he will achieve remarkable things for China. And then he can avoid the ankle chamber trap I just mentioned. But uh, if you don't have a mechanism to ensure that your successor will be as successful or as capable as you are, then in the end, we are still tying the whole nation's fate to just uh, one person. So that's that's a real real concern among the Chinese intellectuals, and uh, a lot of people are uh, worried about uh, uh, because so far they haven't seen a convincing 
answer to these questions. And I do think that uh, uh, part of Xi Jinping's uh, challenge for the next five years is actually how to come up with a convincing answer to address these uh, problems. Moving beyond uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Cheng Yan, uh, China also unveiled uh, its new leadership lineup. And uh, a couple of uh, interesting uh, appointments there. Uh, key, of course, is the new premier, uh, Li Qiang. Now, uh, that role is generally seen as having been diminished under the, uh, uh, with the previous uh, premier, Li Keqiang. And uh, all to do, again, with the consolidation of power by uh, Xi Jinping. But this new guy, who is he exactly? And what can you expect from him? Li Qian, he's a uh, uh, former uh, party secretary of Shanghai. And before that, he also managed uh, uh, Zhejiang province, which is uh, China's uh, economic engine. And uh, he has uh, a very rich local governance experience. He's someone who basically rides through the ranks. And then uh, he has a good relationship with uh, President Xi Jinping. So there's a good chemistry between the two. So a lot of people tend to dismiss Li Qian as just, uh, say, a loyalist of uh, Xi Jinping. I mean, the thing is, in today's China, anyone who can get to the top position, their political loyalty is a given. So you can say this kind of analysis, in a sense, become tautology. Because anyone who uh, rises to the top, they are, of course, at least politically, have a good relationship with uh, the top leader. Oh, let me let, but, me, uh, let me interject here. I mean, uh, just just to yeah. uh, support your point there, this this constant takeaway you have uh, when China rolls out its uh, leadership is uh, Xi Jinping, uh, whoever the president is, has packed his cabinet with loyalists. I mean. That's what everyone does, right? Duh. I mean, any government, any Western government, any democracy, any dictatorship anywhere, when the head of the country puts his team together, who else is he going to get except loyalists? People have to be loyal and follow his vision. Exactly. I mean, if you look at uh, any government, if the president cannot pick the man he has the full trust in, then uh, we only see this when we have the kind of uh, crisis government where you don't have a clean uh, window from the election. Then you have to cobble together a coalition. Then you will have people who are actually not your choice, but put in a key position. And then we call that government lame duck government. <laughs> so any strong government, any government that wants to uh, 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 be in a position where they can initiate reform, difficult changes, etc. Of course, they need people who share their thoughts and then believe in what they are doing and then put these people in, uh, uh, in key positions. It's the same as uh, anyone running any company or, or, or it's the same as anyone trying to run in any kind of organization. Yeah. This is uh, the kind of uh, simplistic analysis I want to avoid, is that uh, when you have an uh, analysis of who Li Qiang is, the only thing you can say is that uh, he is a loyalist of uh, Xi Jinping. That basically, to me, is not really telling your reader or your audience anything that is uh, useful, right? You have to take that as a given, and then you have to focus on what kind of chemistry he will have with the Xi Jinping, whether he will only be the yes man 
Well, this is actually a man with his own idea. Whether he is uh, someone who knows what he's doing, is him a capable person? Does he understand what what it takes to uh, succeed in the job? You have to focus on those areas. And for that, I would think that uh, so far, I think Li Chan has uh, caused for us at least to be cautiously optimistic. We have to give the guy time to prove himself. And then his track record means that he has already proven himself in order to get to where he is. So he, by all the uh, accounts that we uh, we talk to different people, including uh, uh, officials, including uh, business people who had uh, work experience with him, we talk to people who know him decades ago. So gathered from all these people, the impression is that this guy, first of all, is a uh, very pragmatic. And then uh, he is someone who actually very much uh, care about the uh, economic growth, understand the concern of the private sector, understand the concern of the foreign business. I think uh, one uh, example we were told is that uh, when he was in charge in Shanghai, he actually hold meeting with the Shanghai officials and uh, lectured them that uh, they need to change their attitude. He told them that you need to see yourself as uh, someone who can serve the uh, foreign investors so that we can attract more foreign companies to come to invest in Shanghai. You cannot see yourself as uh, someone who are high above and give them uh, this and that order because they can choose not to come to Shanghai. They can choose to put their headquarters in Hong Kong, in Singapore, uh, or even uh, uh, somewhere else. So if they do that, then Shanghai will end up to be the loser. So I think that this is the kind of message that comes from someone who has a very clear understanding of uh, what a modern government needs to be in order to draw the, in, in a globalized environment, to draw the really high quality companies and uh, investors to come to your city to invest. So I think that that's one thing. And then from the, uh, the two-session uh, premier press conference, you can see that uh, the approach is uh, very pragmatic. He's saying that, uh, he's, uh, first of all, he's uh, saying that uh, everyone thinks the economic growth target of 5% is uh, very moderate. But he's saying that even to achieve that is not going to be that easy because we have to understand Right now, the external environment is highly uh, volatile. If you look at uh, all this uh, banking crisis, the food crisis, the energy crisis, uh, and uh, the weakening uh, demand from major economies. And uh, for China, is uh, China just uh, emerged from the COVID control. Uh, right now, the country is gradually reopening itself, but uh, the top leader also worry about what happened if there's a second wave. So all these uncertainties, you need to factor in when you set the target. So from, from this approach, from the tone, you can see that this is uh, someone who actually is not blindly optimistic or trying just to uh, give people the pep talk. He actually acknowledged the difficulties and the challenges China is facing. And then what he will do, he talked about that he will send all these uh, bureaucrats out of their office to actually to do the site visiting. 
you have to go out. You have to, to actually go to the street, go to the factory, go to the villages, and to talk to the people on the ground to understand what's their concern, what, what difficulties they are facing. And more importantly, he asked the officials, you have to ask solutions from these people. Because he think only those people who have the so-called skin in the game, they know what are the best solution for them. Rather than someone sitting comfortably uh, back in Beijing behind a computer screen to imagine the, the solution for these people. He wanted people to actually, his official actually to go out and to talk to people who are directly involved and ask input from them. To me, that's a very uh, pragmatic approach. So that's why I think that uh, from what I witnessed so far, I don't think we can just dismiss this as a yes man to Xi Jinping. Granted, his relationship with Xi, the dynamic between the two will be very different from uh, the previous ones. But this can be a plus. That means that he will have the political backing of the president. They will have a greater understanding of each other. They don't have to second guess each other. Then he probably will have more leeway to implement some of the policies. So Chungin, talking about uh, Li Chang's, uh, the task ahead, the challenges ahead, the economy is a big deal after the carnage that uh, COVID has wrought. Based on the discussions in the two sessions, uh, the indications that he's given when he's talked to the media, etc., what's the outlook looking like? What are you expecting in terms of China's economy? I think uh, the economy before the two sessions, many people think that uh, uh, China will announce a very aggressive target. Because uh, people think that uh, this is the first year of uh, uh, Xi Jinping's third term, uh, he would want to begin it with a ban. He would want to uh, get a very uh, so-called bright GDP growth figure so that uh, uh, it's a show of strengths, right? So, so uh, politically speaking, it will be desirable for China to announce a, a more aggressive target. And then secondly, the people also think that China can actually achieve a higher target because uh, last year the, uh, the growth rate was only 3%. So you start from a relatively lower base. And then uh, the economy is now, the COVID control has been reversed. The economy actually shows signs of recovery. And then there's a, a, all this reason to be more optimistic. So if you look at uh, before the two sessions, uh, most uh, invest, investment house, the prediction is that the Chinese economy can grow 5.3%, some say 5.5%. Some economists even say that uh, 6% is achievable. But in the end, the Beijing set the target to 5%. This to many people is uh, actually a quite conservative uh, 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 target. The reason behind it, uh, this is actually in the mind of uh, Xi Jinping and other top leaders. Achieving economic growth is not an end in itself. It's not everything. They are thinking um, much ahead. They are, they are planning um, the long term. Now, they understand that uh, uh, China's problem is not only to achieve certain percentage of growth. But uh, first of all, the world we are facing is getting increasingly complicated. 
and the chaotic. So uh, you, you, you look at uh, the, the, the past year, right? The uh, food crisis, not only the developing countries, but the developed economies like the UK is experiencing severe food crisis and uh, inflation. And then if you look at the energy uh, sector, it uh, uh, continues to be very volatile. Now, nobody knows when the uh, Ukraine and the Russia war will end. And then around the world, there's a lot of uncertainties. And even in the U.S. recently, uh, uh, you can see the banking crisis and all this kind of problem. So in the mind of the top leaders, achieving certain speed of uh, economic growth is important. But you need to do it in an environment that is stable and is safe. So removing the risk factors in this sense become equally important, if not more important. So from the two sessions, if you listen very carefully, the, uh, no matter in the work report, in uh, Xi Jinping's speech, in the, uh, uh, Li Qian's uh, premier press conference, the emphasis is very much focused on removing the risks, deleveraging the risks, and uh, uh, also changing the role of the government. This part is important, particularly when it comes to uh, developing China's own science and technology, because uh, the other challenge China is facing is that uh, in their assessment, the U.S. Uh, containment of China uh, on the technology and the science front is going to be long term. This is not something that uh, is going to be changed uh, anytime soon. So they need to leave enough room to restructure the economy, restructure the government, and to change the government's role so that the government will uh, uh, switch from the administrator to become the facilitator to support the business and also the scientists and the researchers to lead the innovation. When I talk to the Chinese officials, obviously they feel equally amazed by the uh, uh, wonderful new uh, innovation like the GPT uh, 4.0. And at the same time, they are also concerned. So how China can close this kind of uh, technology gap with the West? And they understand that unless they are ready to change the way how the government interact with the uh, private sector and with the researchers and the scientists, otherwise the gap will only become bigger and bigger. They are fully aware of this. So they need to leave room for uh, China to make adjustment. And then Xi Jinping is someone who actually truly believe in uh, uh, fighting climate change uh, and the green economy, etc. He believed that a uh, wasteful uh, model of uh, old growth is not going to be sustainable. And China is going to pay a very dear price. So it's a very eager that China switch to the greener economy. And to do that, again, you need to provide the policy leeway and the cushion for the local government to make the change. So that is why the economic target is actually set at a quite conservative number. Chung, and also uh, another significant uh, appointment in this new leadership lineup is uh, the foreign minister. Because of the international, the work that needs to be done on the international stage. And this man is Chin Gang. Now, uh, he's somebody who's uh, been criticized in the past as a wolf warrior. 
Personally, I don't have a problem with the word uh, wolf warrior. I think it should be worn as a badge of pride, in fact, because uh, for decades and decades, the West has always dominated the narrative. The West has always been the one scolding and criticizing China. And uh, the response has always been on the uh, defensive side, you know, uh, always on the back foot as far as China is concerned. So they've learned to speak up now. They've learned to fight back. I mean, uh, sorry, the natives have learned to speak back. That's how I see it. But at the same time, um, I also want to interject here about uh, bring out one point here, which is to do with being called a wolf warrior. Now, you and I have worked for many years for the South China Morning Post, and uh, any time you try to explain China to people, any time you try to explode obvious ignorant myths, you are instantly accused of being uh, a CCP shill. Uh, the irony with the South China Morning Post is uh, we are not state media. We operate in Hong Kong where we are free to comment on what goes on in China and to analyze what goes on in China without uh, fear or favor. And uh, being accused of uh, being a CCP shill, etc. There's a one comeback to everyone who would say that at the end of this conversation between you and me as well, you can bet that there will be comments about, oh, the two people, are, the, these two guys are shilling for the CCP. We are actually banned in mainland China. That's how much of a, a spokesman we are for the Communist Party. So let's, let's keep that aside. Put that into context. Keep it as the background when we talk about uh, Chin Gang and the foreign ministry and how he's going to head uh, China's diplomatic drive. What are you expecting from him on the international stage? We actually talked to uh, quite a few foreign diplomats about that impression of Qinggang. So the description one diplomat used, he said that Qinggang is someone who, uh, in comparison with uh, uh, his uh, predecessor Wang Yi, is someone that is uh, straight tough. So this is a guy who, when it is uh, uh, necessary, he can be very charming. He can get into a room and do the small talk and get him, uh, endear himself to you, and then uh, uh, chit-chat with you like a, a friend. He can be uh, gracious. He can put you at ease. He actually has done that uh, while, uh, when he was the uh, China's ambassador to the U.S. He made a lot of uh, trips to the, the so-called flyover states in the United States, talk to the people on the ground, and uh, try to endear himself to them. So he can do that. He's not always uh, a, a wolf warrior who come out and uh, uh, fight people and uh, pick a fight. But uh, they also uh, describe him as a straight tongue, means that uh, he is actually not going to be shy if you step on China's national interests. He's not going to sit back and just uh, tolerate that or uh, just pretend nothing happened. He will be very vocal about that. I remember one diplomat told me that uh, he can come to you he can express the anger or the displease from China and make you understand why doing so is not going to be okay with uh, Beijing. He's not going to be shy in convening that message. I think that, that is uh, one thing that makes him a new breed of the Chinese diplomat. Because uh, the Chinese diplomat in the past is that uh, they... Um, are uh, always are very gracious. They were trying to convey their message in a, in a very roundabout way. That uh, sometimes if you are not 
very familiar with the diplomatic、uh, lingo, you may not really get what is exactly that message. Or sometimes you get the message, but you can pretend that you you don't understand because it's not communicated to you in a very straightforward, very explicit uh, uh, way. Now this guy is different. He he basically can do the very、uh, straightforward type of talking. I think that's uh, that's uh, something that is、uh, quite different. But、uh, to a lot of the Uh, people they actually think this is a, a good thing, because、uh, right now China is、uh, facing an environment where the whole narrative is very much dominated by、uh, the West, particularly by the U.S. Now, for China to really make itself heard, for China to really to convey its message to others, then you have to say this,、uh, the message with、uh, confidence. And then you have to do it in a very straightforward way, that others can actually understand, and also、uh, feel your intention, and、uh, avoid any kind of、uh, misunderstanding or confusion. And on that front, I, I think Xin、uh, Gang did his job really well in the past. And then the、uh, second part is、uh, he is someone who have the political backing from the top. So that is why he can deal with a lot of a complicated situation、uh, with confidence, and for a diplomat, I think that is、uh, going to be important. Now, he is going to be part of a two-man team because、uh, Wang Yi is now become the Politburo member and will、uh, perform as the special envoy of、uh, Xi Jinping. So Wang Yi and the Qin Gang will form a core. To drive China's foreign policy, and I think this is going to be a good team. Is the Yin and Yang? So、uh, Wang Yi is this someone who is、uh, very elegant, very、uh, gracious, can really charm people, and uh, uh, and almost like a, a scholar. And then you have Qin Gang, who has、uh, bring this kind of、uh, straight toughness to the partnership. So it's going to be a good mixture of the two personality, and then maybe this will become the new face for China's foreign policy. Speaking of complicated uh, uh, foreign policy and uh, the risks uh, attached to that, let's talk about Taiwan. We're living in dangerous times, and you can see、uh, how Taiwan is always the potential flashpoint. But from my reading of the two sessions and how this particular issue was discussed. The language from Beijing is still very、uh, nuanced. It's it's quite restrained, rather than、uh, aggressive or you know fire and brimstone. Despite、uh, all the trends about the U.S.、Uh, sending politicians across there, you know basically hordes of people going down there and encouraging Taiwan to stand up to China, this、uh, arming of、uh, arming Taiwan to the teeth. That also goes on, but from the takeaway from the the two sessions,、uh, did you find that、uh, what the world was expecting, you know, China to get even more aggressive, didn't really materialize? Yeah, not only is uh, uh, you say that、uh, the messaging is still very、uh, restrained, I would say that it's、uh, become even more restrained, because uh, uh, if you not only the two session, if you、uh, no matter is the work report or the. The Chinese、uh, uh, uh, Premier press conference. 
And if you go back to the 20th Party Congress last year, if you read the part about uh, Taiwan, right, the language is, uh, I would describe it as uh, firm, but uh, uh, restrained. So China, on one hand, needs to tell the world why Taiwan is a political red line for China. Because you have to accept the fact Taiwan is not another Ukraine, because uh, everyone, most countries in the world, including the United States and uh, uh, its allies, they actually never acknowledge Taiwan as a separate sovereign state. Taiwan is not Ukraine. Ukraine is a United Nations recognized sovereign state. Taiwan is not. Everyone officially say that they acknowledge that uh, Taiwan is a part of China, or they acknowledge that uh, uh, Beijing is having a claim over Taiwan. They don't dispute that, right? So if that's the operating uh, uh, basis uh, for the bilateral relations, then China have to remind everyone. Taiwan, to me, is the political red line. It's the core to my national interests, and you have to respect that. But after they, 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 they said that, they talk about uh, they will prioritize to uh, use the peaceful means to resolve the Taiwan problem. They talk about uh, the need for the uh, people across the Taiwan Strait to uh, strengthen their communication, strengthen their dialogue, etc., etc. Because they are very much aware that uh, ever since last year, there's at least a narrative comparing Taiwan to Ukraine. And basically trying to say that uh, Taiwan is going to be the next Ukraine. And uh, to Beijing, this is not accidental. They think this is an organized approach, basically to use the Ukraine tragedy and trying to draw a comparison with Taiwan in order to portray China as the unstable force, to portray China as an aggressor and to portray that uh, China as the troublemaker in the region. Now, almost every week, you have a U.S. government agency or a military put out a report saying that China is going to invade China, uh, Taiwan in uh, this and that year. To the Chinese, they think that uh, this is uh, not something that is just, just accidental. They think that uh, they understand that everyone in the world is watching over Taiwan with concern. And then if they don't have a counter to this narrative, then China will become being portrayed as the kind of a troublemaker of the world. Uh, someone who are uh, basically upsetting the uh, status quo and the, the world peace. So they need to counter this narrative. That is why in the message, they need to be firm. So leave no room for anyone who try to use this as a China taking a step back and then trying to use this to push for Taiwan's de facto independence. They need to be firm over that. But at the same time, they also need to send a message to the world is that we are not really trying to use the military option to resolve this. If in the end, there was a military conflict. The blame is not, not on our side. We are tr only trying to be reactive. We are only trying to defend our interests. So that's the message. Seems to me that it's quite obvious that if there is going to be a war breaking out uh, over Taiwan, um, rather than China 
aggressively starting this war, it, it seems more like uh, it's in the hands of the U.S. and how much it plans to push China into a corner from which it cannot uh, back away any further, or a very unfortunate uh, accident, you know, when planes flying all over China, uh, uh, over the Taiwan Strait, all the buzzing, the uh, military activity, uh, you know, when, when the United States is using 400 thousand dollar missiles to shoot down twelve dollar hobby balloons because of this big yellow peril uh, narrative that goes around maybe that's where the war is going to start from but anyway let's let's just talk about China's role as, as a peacemaker you you just saw this uh, a diplomatic coup it scored recently which is uh, brokering a deal between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia is there a any chance that it can succeed in doing the same with Ukraine, bearing in mind that the United States has no intention whatsoever of ending that war. They're quite happy to carry on pumping billions of dollars in their arms, ammunition, as long as it's Ukrainian uh, blood being spilled and not American blood. My honest assessment is this. I think that uh, the Ukraine war did put China in a quite a difficult position. Because uh, China just, uh, I mean, for its strategic reason, China uh, needs to ensure that it has a good relationship with Russia. Because otherwise, China will become totally isolated and, uh, and China will uh, feel pressure from all sides. So China needs to have someone to have its back. So that, that is the uh, context where uh, China uh, uh, and Russia signed this uh, uh, friendship deal. Now, unfortunately, right after signing the deal, Russia launched the, the uh, invasion into Ukraine. So this gave a lot of uh, opportunity for China's rival or enemies to portray this as uh, Russia is doing this with uh, China's backing. Now, this put China in a quite a difficult position. And uh, also because uh, China, for the longest uh, uh, of its history, always say that uh, respect for a country's sovereignty is uh, very important, is the principle. Because uh, if you don't respect others' sovereignty, then how do you argue, say, that uh, Taiwan, over Taiwan, we need to uh, uh, get Taiwan back? The claim over Taiwan is built on the fact that uh, Taiwan is a part of China. Taiwan is, uh, uh, China has the rightful sovereign claim over Taiwan. So if you make sovereignty as a cornerstone of the international law, uh, law and order, then what do you say about Ukraine, which is a UN-recognized uh, uh, country, right? So in other words, China is, uh, over the past uh, uh, year, I would say China was uh, sort of uh, on a back footing and faced a lot of this uh, criticism because of its uh, friendship deal with Russia. Now, the Chinese comeback to this is uh, China, at the same time, also facing increasingly the U.S. alliance trying to uh, encircle China, right? Over the past uh, year or so, you have the so-called Asia's NATO, you have the AUKUS, you have the, the court, I mean, every almost every uh, uh, quarter you have a new alliance with uh, some uh, some kind of funny name emerge, and the purpose is actually to contain China. Now, China has two ways to counter this. One is China form its own alliance system, but by doing so, China will fall into the trap because uh, China will never have as many allies as the United States. 
if you compete U.S. playing the same game, then you will fall back to the trap. You will fall back to the new Cold War. You will end up with a few airlines on one side, and the U.S. will have a much bigger airline on the other side. And gradually, your camp will under come under tremendous pressure. Now, China refused to play that game. But if China do nothing, then China will get increasingly isolated. So what do China do? The answer is uh, China decided that it will use action to try to uh, let other countries see that uh, China is someone who observed the status quo. But uh, not only that, but also doing what it can to promote peace. And uh, it started the first one with this uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran deal. I mean, to many people, unless you already have a very strong view on China, to most of the neutral parties, this, of course, is a huge progress, right? This is definitely something that makes our world less uh, risky and uh, less dangerous than before. Then anyone will see this as uh, not, not only the two countries will benefit from the deal, but as the peace broker, then China actually will also score uh, points and others will look at China as a responsible power, a power that promotes peace. Now, if China can do the same over Russia and Ukraine, of course, the challenge is much bigger. But right now, there's no other major power doing this. No other major power coming out and trying to broker a deal between the two. You only have a country who say they will support uh, Ukraine to the very end. But what, what that end will mean? If the end is the collapse of Russia, then the consequences will be... Catastrophic, actually, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, catastrophic. So uh, are we ready to say that we want Ukraine a win at any cost? Hmm. I think most of the neutral countries, they don't want to see things come to that stage. Now, the only major power right now is willing to come out and be the peace broker is China. So even if China fail in its attempt, then it will still demonstrate to the rest of the uh, neutral powers that uh, China is making an effort to promote world peace. So by doing so, China can counter the U.S. narrative that uh, China and Russia are the two troublemakers of the world. They are not to be trusted, this and that. So that is why I, I think uh, China will continue to do this. And uh, other than uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, Ukraine and uh, Russia, I think China will also try to play the peacemaker's role in between Israel and uh, Palestine and also promote the peace and stability in Afghanistan. So you can say that uh, its uh, intention or its motive is not 100% pure. But uh, which country in the world is doing stuff out of uh, uh, altruism? <laughs> so uh, I think the fact that China seeing this as a way to counter the U.S. encirclement, to me, is actually a correct and a rightful move. Chengen, your uh, China expertise obviously also extends to Hong Kong, uh, especially to do with Hong Kong and mainland China relations. And uh, the way that China deals with this troublesome but yet 
very important and also a beloved city of ours. F your reading of the two sessions, where do you see Hong Kong now in terms of the plans Beijing has? I, of course, uh, closely um, uh, followed the Hong Kong part in the uh, two sessions in the official document. And uh, I also spent time to talk to people who understand Hong Kong, uh, the officials and all that, and get their uh, take on Hong Kong. What I will say is um, the official line is that Hong Kong is now moving from chaos to uh, stability. And then the next uh, step is uh, for Hong Kong to move from stability to uh, prosperity, to uh, rebuild the city, to rebuild the generation, rebuild its economy, and all that. And uh, Beijing will give Hong Kong the full support. And uh, the solution the central government see for Hong Kong is uh, for Hong Kong to make use of this uh, uh, greater Bay Area concept, and then uh, to better integrate itself into the greater Bay Area, and then to play a bridging role between China and the world. So uh, they, they still think that Hong Kong has a lot of uh, competitive advantage that no other mainland cities have. Now, that, that's the very official line. In private, when I talk to those officials, they uh, are cautiously optimistic about Hong Kong, meaning that they think after the 2019 and after the uh, national security law and all that, Hong Kong has uh, gradually moved to a more stable environment. And then the legal framework has been changed that uh, going forward, the large scale of um, uh, social turbulence will become increasingly difficult. And uh, they are uh, relevantly confident that uh, we will not see another 2019. But uh, that is not enough. They think that uh, Hong Kong needs to address a number of things, including is, uh, Hong Kong needs to think going forward. Hong Kong is going to operate in a much more dynamic and uh, complex environment. A lot of the countries still see Hong Kong as the weakest link, as uh, the click in the armor. So they will want to use Hong Kong to press China. So Hong Kong government and Hong Kong as a whole needs to be aware that we are not operating in the same world as before. We can still have a place in this world. We can still have a very useful role to play. But we need to not to be so naive as before. We have to aware of the complexity we have to deal with. And whether Hong Kong, uh, no matter the government or the public, has already have the kind of uh, understanding. To be honest, I, I think many people in Beijing are not 100% sure about that. The second part is uh, they think the government needs to, uh, not just the government, but the Hong Kong as a whole, needs to change the way how it operates. It used to be very passive. The government is a small government. It's the so-called uh, uh, night watchman government, basically not doing much, and they just uh, let the market uh, work wonder for itself. But going forward, for Hong Kong to rebuild itself and to uh, reinvent its economy, you cannot take that attitude. You have to be much more proactive. You have to understand that you are going to face competition, not only from like Singapore and others, but also from other mainland cities. So Hong Kong needs to understand 
what is your unique advantage, how you can you can maintain your unique advantage, at the same time, how you can integrate with uh, the mainland economy. Now it's going to be simple if you simply become another part of uh, mainland China, but then you will lose your unique strengths. Then what's the purpose, right? So how to integrate into the mainland economy without losing your uniqueness? This is something that、uh, Hong Kong needs to think about. And they also mentioned that this is that、uh, you cannot expect Beijing to tell you what to do. Beijing will never do that. What Beijing do is、uh, Beijing set the general framework. Beijing tell you the general national development direction is this and that. Is for every local government to figure out how you can fit into the overall development plan, how you can position yourself that you get the most out of this. The central government will never come to you and tell you to do this, to do that. They will leave enough room for the local government to take the initiative and to fight for it. In fact, this is the secret of China's success as well. They encourage certain level of local competition among different cities, different provinces, so that、uh, the cities will have to be on their toes. They need to think about how they can compete with their brothers in order to get the best out of it. This has been the secret formula for China. When it comes to Hong Kong, it's the same. We can no longer expect that Beijing will just、uh, tell you to do this, do that. If you do this and do that, it will be all right. We are now playing a different game. We have to understand that Beijing will only tell you the national、uh, strategy is this and that. Now, I think that you have certain roles that you can play, but as for how you play the roles, you have to figure out that yourself. So that require us to really have a good understanding of China, a good understanding of the world. And a good understanding of ourselves, and align all this, then we can have a good strategy going forward. Yeah, so it's up to Hong Kong to seize the day. Chungyan,、uh, I would love to continue this conversation for a couple more hours, but、uh, all good things must come to an end. Let me just say in conclusion that、uh, we live in these very dangerous times, and、uh, especially regarding. China and the way China is perceived and presented by in the, to the rest of the world, I find the biggest problem is not necessarily Western governments and their agenda against China, but、uh, mainstream media in particular propagating that narrative like stenographers rather than uh, uh, critical thinkers when it comes to China. You know this whole trope about bad China. Good America. So, in that、uh, atmosphere, I think it's very important that、uh, people who understand China, who understand Chinese psychology, who live in China, who deal with China, who eat, drink, and sleep China every day, voices like yours are very important. More nuanced, not black and white. There are many shades in between black and white when you're dealing with China. So, voices like yours. Long may they resonate, and long may they prevail. Thanks very much, Chunya, for joining us. That's it for this edition of Behind the Story. Don't forget, you can find the video version of what you've just heard on our YouTube channel, as well as scmp.com. Just look for the Talking Post playlist. I'm Yondan Latu. 
Thanks for listening. Bye for now.